You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 115, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun, informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Diana Bittner, an OBGYN here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and she has a really interesting story that I'm sure you're going to enjoy a lot. It's a story about someone who is very productive within a large healthcare system and then chose to leave the system and strike out on her own, practicing medicine in an entirely different way. So she went from, as she describes it, being an intrapreneur, someone who's innovative and an entrepreneur within a large system, to someone who's an entrepreneur who starts their own business without all that institutional support. She also learned a lot of things about intellectual property, which we'll discuss in the show. Before we begin, I'd like to introduce the sponsor for today's show, which is extremely pertinent to what we're discussing. It's called Contract Diagnostics. It's a firm 100% dedicated to physician contract reviews. They provide a service that all physician families will need at least one time in their careers, most likely a few additional times as well. I love this company as they've helped over 10,000 physicians understand not only what they're signing, but what risks they are taking for their family, which we'll explore in the show. All contracts are reviewed by an in-house attorney and presented in a simplified way back to you. Using custom documentation, compensation data, and times outside normal business hours, they make it easy for you. All packages are flat price, so you know what you will pay up front. Residents and fellows can even make interest-free payments over time. So look them up at drpodcastnetwork.com slash contract diagnostics or call 888-574-5526. All the links we discuss in the show can be found at theparadox.com slash 115, not only for a sponsor at Contract Diagnostics, but also all of Dr. Bittner's publications. She has a number of books, ebooks, a link to her website, and ways to find out more about her and follow her work, and you get access to other stuff can all be found at the paradox.com slash 115 link. I encourage you, if you enjoy the show, continue to share it with your friends and family and colleagues. That's what's made the show grow so much, and I greatly appreciate that. Also, be sure to hit the subscribe button on your podcast player of choice. It costs absolutely nothing, and this way you don't miss any exciting episode of The Paradox when it comes out weekly. Finally, if you think, man, this Larson guy's got some great stuff. I really hope he continues doing the show, and I want to offer him some encouragement. Well, you can pop on over to Patreon and go to patreon.com slash theparadox. There you can become a monthly patron and supporter of the show, where you can throw a couple shekels in. It helps certainly with the production, the promotion of the show, and it's really helped me expand some things with the show as far as finding guests and increasing the reach of the show. So again, thanks for all you do for free, and if you want to throw in a couple bucks, I'd appreciate that as well. But without further ado, Dr. Diana Bittner, OBGYN, on Blazing a New Path in Women's Health. Enjoy. Well, here I'm with my long friend, Diana Bittner. Dr. Bittner is the co-founder and CMO of True Women's Health. She's an OBGYN, trained at Wayne State for her MD and got a residency training at, in OBGYN at Butterworth Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Nationally certified menopause physician. She specializes in women's sexual health training and is a 2015 Menopause Practitioner of the Year. And today we're going to talk about disruptive innovations in medicine. So Diana, thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Well, it's so nice to actually have someone in the studio because as I told you, it's been, with COVID, it's been weird. I can't, I don't have a lot of people local, but it's kind of nice to have someone local who I know real well. And I've worked with you for ever since I started in OB. And Yeah, a long time. It's been a long time. It's good stuff. Yeah. Wouldn't trade it. All the experience that we've gained, I wouldn't trade that. Right. And uh, we're going to talk today because you're, I've been following your career Perfectly in the and uh, watching what you do, I've, as I've mentioned before when we were off air, that um, I try and follow people who do disruptive, innovative things in the healthcare sphere. And I'd say that's you, even when you were within the large healthcare system. So we're not going to talk about any specific healthcare systems. 
Obviously, if you wanted, you could look it up and figure out pretty quickly what we're talking about. But in general, my my opinion on the healthcare systems in general is that they are all about the same in how they operate. They're large systems and they have similar rules for their I agree. employees. Yes, I agree. Yeah. So we're not going to talk about the specific system, but why don't you describe, I guess, your initial journey into Grand Rapids and leaving residency, basically how your practice started and then how you moved from there to the employment situation. Sure. So when I graduated from residency, I actually went and worked in a very small hospital, more rural hospital for two years, which was a great experience. And actually, if I can talk about an experience that really changed my career early on, I got to spend a week with Dr. T. Barry Brazelton in, <laughs> That's a great name. <laughs> in Boston. So an incredible pediatrician who since passed, uh, wrote a wonderful memoir at 100. He taught me something that was critical to where I am today. He taught me we are never, ever, ever to tell a patient what to do. That's not our role. Our role is to provide anticipatory guidance and what we say happens, let's say with a newborn's development in his sphere, in my sphere, what's going to happen as a woman goes into labor and has a baby. Mm-hmm. When that happens, we now have this trusted partner. And we've been able to be with a patient in their most vulnerable moments that are critical to their life. And it forms this bond that's sacred. I think you and I share that, that we just feel that that trust that a patient puts in us is sacred. And so I really put that into practice and and went into patient encounters differently, making it all about them. And I really became clear with my why as a physician of my goal, my why is to give patient tools so they can have the life that they want, the delivery that they want, the hysterectomy that they want, the experience through the healthcare system that they want. I want to provide them tools without telling them what to do and forming this really, again, sacred partnership. And that essentially is what's led me to today. It's almost like um, it, it's sort of turning paternalism on its side. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's not actually, it's not seeding the fact that you're an expert, but it's it's really walking with the patient and actually being a part of their of their health journey, right? I mean, that's, it's a little bit different than a lot of times I feel like in social media, you see lots of um, yelling from healthcare people, I'd say, about COVID and mask Agreed. wearing, for instance, right, right. instead of saying, Hey, let me tell you why you should do this. But it's just, it tends to be a lot of, I guess, from, from above, you know. Exactly. And another thing Brazelton taught me is when, when patients get passionate, when they get angry, when they cry, especially when they're angry, they're scared. It's all founded in fear. And so when I would have a, a patient upset about something, I'd say, talk to me. What are you scared of? And it just totally changed the conversation. It gives me shivers now thinking of it. And so back to your question, I was uh, an employed physician for two years, you know, straight out of training. And then I joined another physician-owned group that I was uh, partners in this group for over 15 years and really just had a wonderful practice with um, three partners, which grew to five, which grew to 10. And we were in a multi-specialty group. We were then acquired by a hospital system and I became an employed physician. And so I tend to be a survivor in the sense of I make the best of a situation. And so, mm-hmm. you know, each time did that. And so I really tried to look at the employed situation as a benefit, you know, that there's maybe deeper pockets for innovation. There's deeper pockets for research. There's more layers of, you know, I didn't like giving up so much the control, for example, of making things happen quicker, but really tried to look at the employment situation with a positive eye. Right. And so was able to work in that until I wasn't. Until you weren't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, sometimes in the show, we kind of talk about employment as if it's a dirty, dirty word. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's just a trade off that like any medication, you give someone, right? There, everything. there are risks and benefits, right? right. There, the benefits are you don't have to deal with lots of the overhead. The risks are you don't get any of the rewards from some of the decisions make and you have less autonomy, you know, in general. Correct. Although even in medicine, even if you're autonomous, you're not autonomous you you're regulated by licensing boards and medical boards and everything and so exactly there's only so much you can do right that's right um so i would say as i was following your career it became clear that you were you had changed i guess the trajectory of what you were doing is from a clinical practice right Correct. i mean i think you're as an OBGYN, you're from outside me looking in you had a pretty standard practice in the sense that you were did a lot of deliveries you did a lot of i think 
obstetrical care. Sure. I mean, of course, that's all I, mean, I see I was as a, really, as a anesthesiologist. Yeah. I mean, I was a really high, I was a high, very highly productive, let's you, say. You were very busy. <laughs> I was very busy. But, you know, I um, very early on adopted technology. I did fancy laparoscopic stuff early. I became a robotic surgeon early. Um, loved my obstetrical practice. Like I moved people through the office. I was a high earner. Like I just, I really embraced what I did. And I took the philosophy of when I'm home, I have three children. You know, when I'm home, I'm home. When I'm at work, I'm at work. And, you know, I just worked really hard and I love, love what I did. But what happened about 15 years into practice is my patients are aging with me. Right. Um, they started asking me questions I couldn't answer. And I always <laughs> joke that us physicians, if you'll allow me, are like men, and that if we can't fix something, we don't want to hear about it. It makes us feel inadequate. And so, you know, certain stuff I could blow off. You know, this rash doctor, I'm like, I don't know, go Call to the germ. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, back pain, I don't know, let's go to PM&R or whatever. Like, you know, I was okay saying what I didn't know. But when women started asking me things like, Doc, why am I gaining weight? you know, at midlife? Why do I have painful intercourse? Why do I have hot flashes and night sweats? Why? I'm like, uh, uh, I don't know. And then I had a aha moment with a patient who started on some estrogen by another physician, came to me for more because it wasn't working. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't give it to her. And I said, I don't know much about this hormone thing, but I know that you're on as much as you're supposed to have. So no, I won't give you any more. She went to another doc. She got double dose, had a PE, almost died, pulmonary oh. embolism. You know, I was like, okay, A, I got to know more about this hormone stuff. This is, you know, hormones are powerful. And number two, wow, hot flashes are more than estrogen. Hot flashes could be mood and depression and obesity. And so I thought, I got to know about this. So I went off to the North American Menopause Society and over time became a certified menopause practitioner. But I was just blown away about how much is known about gender-specific healthcare. Yeah. How us, you know, women are different than men. And how that really impacts, let's say, risk stratification for heart disease, how that really impacts, you know, what we do around the time of menopause. And so I thought, wow, I got, I got to get into this. It's interesting because you would think uh, as a layman, you say, oh, well, if you have any sort of women reproductive questions right. or sexual health, ask an OB. It, you absolutely ask an OB, right? But it's not part of your training, right? Because most of your training is surgical in the sense that you're take, doing hysterectomies and yeah I could deliver a baby standing on my head you know and do do a hysterectomy with one hand tied behind my back but you know hormones I I don't know and uh, so and recently I was part of a study the PI was at Mayo Jewel Kling and so I was on um, one of the co-authors and you know we surveyed residents um, you know in in our town and then in other towns across the country and surveyed internal medicine versus family practice versus OBGYN in terms of some real basic questions about menopause and appropriateness of hormone replacement mm-hmm. therapy, et cetera. It was really deplorable, actually. It was worse than <laughs> I thought. And so, you know, so I really started working to educate our residents and, and really thought about that. But it, it really was, it, it's really fascinating how we should be the ones who know and we're not. Yeah, because if you think about it, there's really no other specialty that would be... Who supposed to right. know? Right. I mean, I guess you could argue maybe an endocrinologist would know something about... Some, but, that they're, you know, worry about growth factor and, oh, yeah. you know... all that kind all of that. stuff. I mean, I guess they probably understand the, the feedback loops. But, right. yeah, so when you were near the end... Uh, that's a bad way of putting it, but as you're as you're finishing up your career with, the, with this, your employed model, mm-hmm. you had clearly moved into, as you mentioned, this women's health, I don't know if that's the right term for sure. it, uh, sort of menopause, perimenopausal sort of health. And and you were doing lots of, you're doing media all the time. You you definitely had a lot of passion for this. like a, mm-hmm. And it was, I guess you, you know, you're aging with your patients, right? I mean, we right. all are. And so your, your focus is different. And so you kind of had some things set up. And where you ended up today, which we'll get to in just a moment, it seemed like a natural progression. It seemed like exactly where I'd expect you to end up. But my guess is you couldn't end up where you wanted to end up in the situation you're in. Is that pretty accurate? Well, like if you had told me five years ago I'd be independent <laughs> with my own practice, I would have told you you're, you're crazy. You know, first of all, I'm just loyal to the death. And so, you know, I just never imagined I'd leave those people. You yeah, know, right. um, we were colleagues, we worked together. Um, and it kind of how it all started, you know, that journey was I 
remember seeing a, a statement by Dr. Spiroff. He's a, a god, small g, in our, in our world. And he um, said that when women come into menopause, it's an opportunity we have to get them reengaged in their health because it's a point of pain that they maybe have been on autopilot in their life for their 30s or 40s, and then all of a sudden they start having hot flashes and night sweats and all the symptoms. And, you know, until that time, they're probably cruising in terms of diabetes risk or heart disease risk. But at that menopause transition, their risk factors for heart disease, let's say, go up to equal or be greater than that of a man in three years from last menstrual period. And so, you know, we have this opportunity to, to get them at their point of pain, solve that point of pain, and then bring them in to, into risk reduction for, let's say, chronic disease. So I saw this statement. I thought, oh, my God, I want to be one of those docs that makes a real difference for women, you know, and I just at the time thought of just my patient population. And so I wanted to develop a program around that because I'd go to these women's health meetings and I'd sit at the end of four days of lectures and say, oh my God, this information is so incredible. And then I heard a statement by the AHRQ that said it takes 10 years to get good new information from, from the bench out into the trench, you know? <laughs> and so I thought if this information, my patients can't wait for 10 years. I have to do something with this. So I actually wrote a clinical process of care in 2007 called Waypoints. W-A-I, who am I? Stands for, you know, for Uh Waypoints. Okay. And so Waypoints looked at personalized goal setting. So I call that your picture of self. So I thought, boy, if if I can help women imagine a future um, of how they want to be at a milestone event, wouldn't that be cool? And then I can partner with them to get there. But then how do we figure out where they are now? So I came up with a rating system of three is the least risk for chronic disease. One is the most risk. Us girls, we like to see things go up as we get better. (laughs) And so then I came up with nine areas of wellness. So A is activity, B is obesity, C is cancer, D, diabetes, E, ease of coping, F, phasal ovarian function, G, good bones, H, heart disease, I, income security. And so if I could ask a woman her picture of self and then rate it in all these areas, and then, so I was still an employed physician when I wrote all of this. And so I came up with this process of care. And of course, at the the system, there's an innovation committee. And so went through all that kind of stuff, um, did the copyright, did the, and so then I did a pilot study of 100 women. And we walked these 100 women through the process of care and then saw that, oh my God, they got better. They lost waist circumference, blood pressure dropped, symptoms improved with or without HRT, with or without SSRI. Like we really got something here. People knew their risks and they knew their, they had a plan for their wellness in all these areas. And so that's where it started to get interesting with being in an employed system. So why did you describe what what the interesting things were? Because you mentioned some, you threw around some terms, copyright and, you know, there's innovation and, and anyone who's been part of a large organization, you know, if you come up with an invention and you're part of some company, you're an engineer, well, you're not going to own that invention, right? It's going to be owned by your employer. Even though you say, well, I did it all in my own time when I right. had nothing to do with where I was working. It's part of the contract. Right. We part all con- sign it. Now exactly. I know how to read those contracts, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> so I know a lot about that. But what happened was that at the time there was an innovation committee that was formed to help promote physicians to bring ideas to market. And so to encourage physicians to do that, what they did is they created a actually very equitable deal. So I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll do this. And so, um, you know, with that, the, the deal was that my ideas, my time, my intellectual property, their support, support for lawyers, support for whatever. I think I had three IP attorneys at, at once. And so, (laughs) And we had a process patent underway. We um, have how many copyrights and trademarks. And, and so I learned a lot about intellectual property law. Um, and so, you know, the problem came, though, when this, this waypoints and everything was getting bigger than they knew what to do with. And so essentially they came to me at one point and said, you know what, this is just, this, this isn't what we do. You know, we do widgets. We yeah. do new ways to intubate people. We do right, new ways, yeah. new trash cans. We do new stuff. We don't do processes of care. We don't do, you know, ideas of how to take care of people. We don't know how to do that. And so, you know what? Sorry, it's done. You know, we're going to cancel the project and you can't have it. You can't do it. You can't. And I absolutely like 
walked away from the meeting with just mad tears. Yeah, like, right. I, I can't, this is my life work. Uh, how? So I called a friend and, um, you know, who I'd known from the, my multi-specialty group. And we remembered that there was a line in the contract, the innovations contract that said the the I, the ownership of the intellectual property can revert to the inventor under mutually agreeable terms. Okay. So the mutually agreeable terms took a lot of time and money to negotiate. <laughs> it sounds like money so, more than anything. <laughs> again, I've learned a lot about contracts, but it, it worked out that I was able to license away the material and long story short, that ownership has now reverted to my current company, which is True Women's Health. So learned a lot of lessons in all of that, but but the you know the happy ending is that the intellectual property is now now mine and and my dream didn't die on the shelf. Right, and so that would be the sort of the example. Like if you were looking to innovate in your employee, you have a lot of um, you have a lot of support from the institution. They can they can help you. Which is like great. They have the attorneys. Right. They got they know the process. They can do marketing. They can do all that sort of thing. But when it gets outside what they want and they want to kill the project for whatever reason. Then that's just it, and it's gone. And so that was the, that's the risk so that you probably didn't even think out. about, right? I didn't yeah. even think about that. Yeah. But so good to have an out, and you know, to understand that. And so, for example, I you know published a study in the journal Menopause, so peer review published, and then wrote a book about it. And the book is the stories of the women who went through the pilot study, and also just the meat of what it is. And also learned right there. I self published. Well, not self-published. I used a publisher, but sh- but the publisher didn't require that I give her the copyright. Right. So I was able to maintain the copyright. So again, it wouldn't be a publisher who's saying, hey, you know, this book isn't selling. You can't do anything with it. Sorry. You know, have a good life. So at least the copyright is still in actually in true women's health name. So, So again, learning lots of lessons because again, this is my life work. This isn't just a job. Yeah. I think that's a really important lesson. I mean, whether you're in medicine or not, I mean, I think where where the intellectual property lies and, and when you start a new venture, uh, to really think about, I guess, uh, ultimately where you want to go, what will be successful or not successful, right? I mean, I think that's because if you've, it has to go a certain direction, if you if your partners change their mind or something, you have to be able to have... You have to decide, I guess, whether the support is essential or it's it's critical to you getting to the point or say, you know what, I'm going to risk putting extra capital in my own or whatever because mm-hmm. it has to be a certain way for me to be find this meaningful to me. And so without that, you end up where <laughs> you end up in exactly. a bad place. So, so, so yeah, that's, that's, that was part of what finally made the decision to go out on my own. So you're on your own. You've been that way for two years now. Is that right? One year. It's one year. Okay. I was going to say about the one year anniversary. Yeah. With COVID, everything just is all jumbled up. It's hard to know. With you there. <laughs> it's yes. Hard to exactly. know when time has started and began. Uh, so you've been by, on your own now for your which great time to launch right during COVID. Right. Oh I'm sure my. that was a great time. So to pick again, up I've learned so much, and I've <laughs> really learned to look at you know more and more. I've always been a survivor since early age, but you know, more and more to look at hardship as, okay, this is an opportunity to pivot. It's an opportunity to learn. It might be super hard at the time, but I'm just going to do it. And so, yes, having opening a business during COVID was quite a challenge. You know, the good thing is one of the things I always wanted while I was an employed physician, and it just wasn't going to happen, is I wanted to develop an app, actually a larger website, but but at least an app that I could use to interact with my patients that I could use, that they follow along with their habits and their symptoms. My last day with the system was on July uh, 3, excuse me, and by um, the next week I was in New York. Uh, So funny, I thought I was interviewing this company to develop my app. (laughs) Actually, they were interviewing me um, to see if they wanted to develop my app. (laughs) But uh, they were an amazing company, um, Remedy, now purchased by Optimize Rx. But within three months, they developed our app. And and the app is HIPAA protected, and we can do telehealth over the app. So that allowed me to open a brand new women's health clinic during COVID is we were able to do telehealth on the app. Right. So you were able to, you didn't have to have the waiting room. Uh, obviously, you do have the waiting room and you have this physical space as well, right? Well, actually, what's so interesting is that when I was thinking about what I wanted this space to be, so I had to give six months notice at my employer. So I had six months to ruminate about what this place would look like and, and be planning this. And so um, in ruminating about what I wanted the space to look like, I really wanted it to be like a spa in the sense mm-hmm. how if... 
Dr. Larson, you've ever been to a spa, you get whisked back right away. There's no real waiting room area. You're whisked back and you're given a robe and slippers and you go hang out in the restoration lounge until you're called for your service. So I thought, I really want that in my clinic. So actually, there was never a waiting room designed in my clinic. So people come to the front. It's a very restorative space. There's a waterfall on one side. And they're brought back, of course, after COVID. They'll be allowed to be in the restorative lounge, but now right. they're just right into the patient room. So we never even planned on a waiting room. But before so we could out. even open, yes, it was on telehealth. Yeah. And all the, whenever I hear spa, I just think of cucumbers. And <laughs> I just don't. We have cucumber water, actually. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you so you began this clinic a year ago, and my hunch is that you use all these things you've been working on, and then you've integrated them into into, into your practice, practice, right? I mean, so you, so how is your? Well, I guess why don't you go basically? Please. What is the practice for a membership? I know you have a membership fee. We talk about direct primary care here a lot. I don't know how familiar you are with that, but it's you know you pay a membership, you have access to a physician. I know yours is probably a little bit different, but what what exactly the what is the relationship with patients and sort of how do you work the membership and sure. all those things? So to your point, like we've really incorporated this whole clinical process of care, but then also into our practice of medicine and our business of medicine. So one thing that I learned while I was still employed is that I really had to think about the sustainability of a practice. And if I can back up just a little bit, a book that really helped me while I was employed was a book called The Intrapreneur. It's how to be an entrepreneur within a corporation. Oh. <laughs> and one of the things is to really run a business unit within a large corporation. And so, you know, I would really focused on learning the business of running a midlife and menopause office within the system. And then now that I'm outside of the system and I'm an entrepreneur, I really have learned a lot about business sustainability. And you know, taking insurance, we certainly consider that or interacting with insurance in the regular way. And it just didn't seem to be a sustainable business model. So we did a lot of research looking at DPC models, looked at even, you know, there are large corporations that hire physicians to be DPC physicians under, you know, and so we really looked at a lot of different models and we settled on a couple different models in one. So basically our patients, it is a membership based practice. Um, We have a complete program that allows for unlimited visits. We figured out how to work with HSA and FSA and HRAs. Um, But then also we have a basic program that is a lower cost for us, but still a membership-based program. But then receipts are given after point of service that patients can turn in for reimbursement from their provider. And we're considered, of course, an out-of-network provider. We also have an Empower program for women 25 and under. It's a one-time visit. And again, they can use that receipt to get for reimbursement. We have a Silver Wellness program for women 65 and over, knowing that they won't get reimbursement from Medicare for an out-of-network provider. And we also have a Cancer Wellness program. So myself and um, RPA, we specialize also in cancer survivorship and cancer wellness. So after the cancer cancer journey in terms of not only finding their new normal, but cancer surveillance and reduction of risk of chronic illness. For example, women with who survive breast cancer, the thing that they're most at risk of dying from is a heart attack because of, for example, premature menopause. So we really look at survivorship. And so, again, a membership-based practice with some one-offs. Yeah. I, and you know, in many ways, I mean, I looked at your pricing, and it was, it was what I would say is fairly inexpensive. Uh, you know, in many ways compared and, to others, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look, if you're paying out of pocket for things, I mean, obviously, way less than that. But even with copays and visiting people a couple times a year, you're still going to be forking over quite a bit, especially with today's deductibles, right? I mean, your your prices are in some ways probably even less because you're not. The the deductible price, the discounted price you get from the insurance company is usually not that right. discounted as most people know. I, I think for people who are looking at this as a, a novel way of practicing medicine, let's say a patient who's always participated in the traditional system, it does take a little bit to figure out that, wow, I'm paying out of pocket for something that I never really thought about paying out of pocket. But if you're looking at it from, let's say, uh, the concierge physicians in town, they're like, well, you're not charging enough. Right, yeah. How are you going to get away with that? So it's interesting to see the two perspectives when really people add it up. And that's, you know, at first I must say as a physician, I'm not used to talking about money. And so I, I must say, I'll even tell patients, I used to be apologetic, you know, that we had to talk about money. 
But then, you know, how many times do we put down the credit card for a copay in an office and don't even think about 60 bucks? You know, we don't even think about 100 bucks for a copay at the right. ER. If you got to go, you got to go. And so now in terms of, you know, number one, we cost less than that. Number two, if we can get in front of someone's health with prevention and get on top of stuff, maybe they're less likely to go to the ER, for example. Sure, yeah. And so I've really become unapologetic. And then last week I did a Facebook Live with a healthcare attorney who actually wrote all the high deductible plans for our local insurance company. And we talked, we had a very frank discussion on Facebook Live and talked about, okay, sit down and add it up. You know, yeah. what really is more cost effective? So I'm feeling a lot better about talking about the model. And I really, I really believe it's going to work. Well, and, you know, that's something we always, as physicians, we need to talk about more money. I mean, we have a fiduciary responsibility to our patients as well, right? I mean, you know, you don't want someone going bankrupt because you're just ordering labs and tests that are unnecessary, right? I mean, that, the reason you go to a physician over maybe a mid-level provider is because you're, you have a greater experience and you're less likely to have, to have need more tests and things to do determine what's wrong, right? Exactly. I mean, and hopefully you have with the increased training and time, you have more knowledge, right? Well, and I talk to patients all the time about, I only order a test if it's going to change my management. Right. And so, you know, with our risk stratification, for example, for heart disease, we do a Reynolds score. So yes, I get a CRP. Yes, I get a lipid. Yes, I get an A1C on everybody. And I offer the CAC, the coronary artery calcification test. Like we really do, because women want to know. Yeah. And so, again, I want to put the, the information back in their hands so they can make choices and know about their bodies, and then I partner with them. So to your point, yes, responsibility, and I feel all, you know, it's risk versus benefit, just like with the medications, with a test. You know, if we do the test and we find this is, what are we going to do, and this is what it costs. So I really, again, want to put informed consent back in the hands of the patient. I have yet to meet an auto mechanic, a plumber, electrician, lawyer, who's a who's embarrassed by their, what, how much they charge. I don't know why physicians have this problem. A hundred percent. Like to go for a massage is a hundred bucks, yeah. but yet that's two months of my care. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. do I really deserve <laughs> less than massage? You know, it's like it takes, uh, yeah. So let's talk about, you have a clearly interesting model. It's one that is, it fits you. Do you see this as something that is, that would be appealing to new grads, to people who are, maybe through the career or maybe near the end of the career or whatever. Do you think this is something that is going to catch on that more people are starting to do this sort of thing with the OB? I really value all the time I had in traditional medicine in terms of experience in the trenches, doing very similar things, getting my shtick, you know, really, you know, really getting the experience of being a physician, right? And then to be able to now pivot my career at 54, I'm very, very grateful. In terms of this model of care, I think it's definitely something it helps to have experience in traditional medicine before coming into such a role. But more and more, I I think there's benefits of a traditional system versus this, but it's really being thoughtful about how one practices medicine, right? And so, for example, I see a, you know, an abbreviated form of what we do at True in the traditional system. And so, you know, I really... I really want to transform women's health in that women are put more in the driver's seat. And what I believe our secret sauce is, is that we've been able to systematize risk stratification. We systematize goal setting. We systematize barrier reduction. And we put that information in a very usable way for patients. So to have that model adopted in traditional care I think would be really cool where someone is in terms of their employment. I don't know that that so much, you know, impacts our model, but to have our model be the standard of women's wellness care. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, you look at the number one satisfier, I've seen it on this show many, many times. The number one satisfier for physicians is the relationship you have with your patient. hundred percent. Is it better now than it was in the pre- previous system? I mean, I think my, my understanding is it definitely is, right? I mean, definitely yeah, is. So it's different. And again, this is interesting is that this is how I practiced back in traditional medicine, but now I get to do it even more. And what I was doing in the traditional system in terms of really anticipatory guidance and wasn't rewarded, you know, right. and, and, and I still had a good relationship, but now it's even deeper. And now I have the tools to do it. Like, for example, all of our you know, questionnaires and how we rate symptoms and goal setting on our app before I even walk in the door with a patient, I know we're better than probably 
any other physician has known her. Who does the, who handles the money in your house? Who, you know, what is your relationship with food? What do you know about glycemic index? What do you want to be when you grow up essentially? So <laughs> all that is, is systematized. And so it's, it's a way that we can really understand our patients and then get down to what really matters to them. Yeah. I mean, you just have more time to deal, to spend with people, right? More time, but I also recognize that, again, it has to be about business sustainability. So if I'm spending, yeah. right, three hours with the patient, yes. In the system, it was 20 minutes. And that was, again, one of my biggest dissatisfiers is I'm like, no, I can make this sustainable with 30 minutes. And a new patient, I really want an hour. Mm-hmm. I can make this sustainable. I did. I ran a break-even unit. <laughs> and so, you know, I have to be efficient. I And so what I believe that I've done with our app and with our system is made such visits, even when they are just 30 minutes, um, or if we ever have a quicker visit, we've already got such a background on the patient and we've created this relationship that we, we can get people through quicker, but still have a deeper visit. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I, in most traditional practices, you're spending a lot of time collecting data that is of no clinical relevance for the physician or the patient, maybe even billing. I mean, you know, they're, right. they're collecting demographics for some far off bureaucrat somewhere to say, you know, how many of your patients wear seatbelts or something like that. Right. right. And we have all those things we collect at the hospital that are, that no one ever looks at. I mean, I, when I get an H and P, I look at maybe 10% of what's mm-hmm. on there because I don't, most things I don't, honestly, if you uh, wear a seatbelt, doesn't matter to me when I'm doing your anesthesia. Yet it's always in the H and P for right, <laughs> for me, exactly. and no one cares. But it's collected because they're for billing reasons, and so a lot of the stuff we do really is not have any point. So uh, with OB, do you still do obstetrics and deliveries? Do, do not do so, not do that. So that was something you had to in order to for this model to work, you had to hand that over to the young the young kids. Exactly, and <laughs> and to your point, like sometimes I forget about that, but there definitely was transition. I mean, I loved and respected the work I got to do with women to deliver their babies. And, you know, I do miss some of that fast paced. I I was good at it. And I took really good care of people. And there's a part of me that missed that. But it was something that I acknowledged I had to give up to do this. Looking back, I'm, I'm really glad I did. But there was definitely some grief at the time of letting that go. Yeah, well, I mean, that always happens every part of life, right? Whatever you do. I mean, you know, I really like doing this, that or the other thing, but I don't have time to do this, that and the other thing I have to I have to pick. And so at some point, and the hours are tough. I mean, for, for OB to continue doing those all nights and, and to be sharp and to be able to operate in the middle of the night all the, you know, yeah. back to back to back sometimes. I mean, that's not easy as we get older. I find it's harder to it those is. calls every year. You know, harder. in the last seven years of, of full OBGYN practice, at the same time I was writing the book, I was doing the study, I was doing the research and, you know, it really was starting to take a toll on my personal life, which I didn't have much of you know, working nights and weekends and writing and thinking and inventing and learning intellectual property law. And, you know, (laughs) it was a lot. And one of my frustrations, again, in the system is that there's, you know, in any large system, there's just not room for many one-offs. And so, you know, I constantly said, you know, hey, I want to take care of these patients that nobody else knows or wants to take care of. Can I please be allowed a one-off? Can I be given time to do this and somewhat maintain a salary? So for years, I took a big salary cut to not do as many deliveries, not do as many surgeries to work on these other projects, to see these patients that were lower margin services. So, (laughs) you know, high margin, hey, you can do all the hysterectomies you want, but lower margin service is just Again, there's concern about business sustainability. I get it. I don't have yeah. um, any resentment or bit- bitterness. It just, it is what it is. And so, you know, I was really frustrated that I want to innovate and take care of these patients. It seems like the right thing to do. Why can't I do it within the system and support the system? Um, and it just, again, over time, it just didn't work. Yeah, it is, it is very challenging medicine because we're so, um, from a reimbursement standpoint, so procedurally oriented. So if you're doing surgeries, if you're doing something, you're getting it compensated much higher than if you're someone who is talking about something, right? And exactly. Which, from a health impact, arguably, the talking about stuff is far more important and, and life-altering than taking out someone's appendix. I mean, obviously, both important. But. Exactly. And that's just, you know, probably just a whole other conversation. But I, um, yeah, beca- I went from being a, a doer to a thinker. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you see lots of new grads? I mean, are they, you've been around a year now. We have a robust residency practice here the kids obviously kids they're 30 years old i know um <laughs> we're stating you suddenly age. you suddenly realize this when you go into medicine that um you 
continue to get older, but the residents are all exactly the same age. Exactly. <laughs> they're all 20. Every time they come in, they're 26. You're like, how is this possible? They keep you- Do you find that did they approach you and said, hey, I want to see what you're doing. I'm kind of interested in what you're doing. Or are they just kind of, do they not know about you or, you know, I think that there's just so much, they're so busy doing what they're doing mm-hmm. and learning what they're learning. We, I've had some requests for shadowing. So we're doing a little okay. bit of that. And, you know, it's people wanting to kind of understand the model. I do some lectures for the residents still, but it's also, there's lots of questions about the business side of it again, because there's just, I think more and more, there is some education about that, but Again, it's to, to, they want to talk to somebody who's gone outside the model. And what does that look like? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, when you're a resident, you, yeah, you don't have much time to talk about business models and things like that. But clearly, whenever you get the opportunity to talk to someone who's doing something different, you're like, oh, what's that like? Um, it's all very foreign because most of the people they're trained with are people within the system or who operate in a traditional manner. And so, I mean, I talk, when I talk to DPC docs now, they are getting more and more who are coming into residency with anticipation that they're going to do direct primary care, which is, totally new than it was 10 years ago. Yeah, and, I think that hasn't hit the woman's health field so much. Well, probably right? not, but yeah. you're, you know, you're, well, I mean, you might as well be an innovator here too, right? That's I mean, right. I mean, I've talked to some OB as well, but they are, ten, they are open women's clinics, but they're a little bit different, somewhat similar, but um, I think there's still, someone's probably has to try and figure out how to do OB with actually as a, as a membership fee or some sort of thing. I don't know if there's a way of doing it yeah, to work without outside the insurance system. I trust that someone will figure it out because it seems like every sort of other way of caring for people, people are figuring out ways of, of working outside the system. And it may just be the system changes, which is entirely possible that you have more employer and self-funded insurance plans. You have people who are operating outside the traditional insurance and they're going to be looking for people who can provide those services. hundred percent agree. And again, it's just getting people that are willing to take that work on and, and, you know, be innovators. I've learned about, you know, market awareness and market perception. And, <laughs> you know, it's those who go before that, that pay and create yeah. this market awareness. And then it's, you know, coming behind with, with a, with a slightly different product perhaps. And so, you know, again, I just, I just think about all the time, how can we really make a difference for, for women's health? Something you referred to earlier about being on media and all this, like, it was never my goal, you know, to write a book. It was never my goal to go on TV and, um, I've already been on once today. And, and so, but there was a, a line that I remember from the movie, The American President. Okay. In the absence of truth, people are listening to whoever's talking. <laughs> and so, you know, I'd go to these women's health meetings and just see these mentors that are now my mentors and my friends, but I'd see these amazing researchers from Yale and Harvard and, you know, wherever. And they're, they're just so amazing. Their wealth of knowledge, their knowledge of treatments, let's say for menopause symptoms is just incredible. How do the masses not know about this? Well, it's because they don't think about talking about it in a traditional marketing media sense. And, you know, how are women supposed to know if we're not out there, you know, which is the whole story of the WHI, the Women's Health Initiative study, where, you know, before the study came out, 75% of American women over the age of 60 were on hormones. And then, you know, nine months later, only 20% were <laughs> right. uh, because of unfortunately the miscommunication that happened over the results of that study. That study was actually a really good, elegant study, but most of us didn't take the time to read the study. We read the newspaper like everybody else and said, everybody off hormones. <laughs> and turns out that was not the right thing to do. But again, no one was talking about it except Dr. Suzanne Summers. And so, you know, that's where the compounded medicine took off. So again, if we're not out there with good information, the fact that compounded medicine is not the safest alternative, you know, for example, then, so somebody's got to get out there. So yeah. I've just learned... You know, and I started with taped radio and then went to live radio and then tape TV and went to live TV. And so now, you know, I've become very comfortable talking about this because, again, I feel the obligation to get the word out that women have options to age the way that they want. Yeah. Well, it's easy if you have a passion for it, too, right? I mean, because right. you want to learn more about it and you want to spread the word. And yeah, I, w- I would say in general, it's probably very helpful for people to be out there. And, and if you're someone who is an innovator in the field and uh, whether it's a payment model, I mean, I look at the direct primary care model just because it's, it was so kind of transformative. It's funny because it's actually very basic, right? Like anyone who's from 1950s, like 
You mean you go and pay your doctor when you see him? Exactly. That seems shocking, right? <laughs> you know, they, right. they think we're crazy that we're like, it's a revolution. We tell people yeah, how much it brilliant. costs. We're like, what? You don't tell people how much it costs when you go to see? Um, but those people who were the first ones in the market 10, 15 years ago, they develop systems, they develop processes that everyone else follows now. And they are sort of the market leaders. And they, they did, they paid the, they paid the cost to try and explain to everyone, you know, what they're doing because right, no exactly. one knew. But now they are thought leaders and they're the ones who are standing up there giving the lectures, telling people this is a new newer way and a better way, I think, to do, to deliver care. Right. And, um, I, you know, that's just what you have to do after you've kind of blaze the trail. So, you know, exactly. a couple of years, I expect to see you doing the same thing. All right, cool. But but it's all about putting it to in language that patients can understand. Yep. Again, you know, to put women in the driver's seat of their healthcare, we have to talk about it in ways, you know, in, it, in making it all about what they care about. They care about time. They t- care about connection, community, answers. I did a customer survey of, you know, what do, what do women want? Do they want to be told what to do that do they want to be just given an answer do they want to be you know do they want to have just their their questions you know being given let's say a medication they really want to know why why do I have hot flashes why am I having and then hmm what are my options what have other people tried (laughs) you know so it's really understanding it from their perspective and then how can we serve them yeah so let's briefly go over stuff you've done um well, by that I mean you you mentioned you've mentioned a couple of times you authored a book. So why don't you talk about your two books? I guess one's ebook and one's an actual book. And then we'll talk about the card game just briefly. Sure. And then people well the links to all these will be on the show notes page, theparadox.com. Thank you. So the book is the 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 meat of what the waypoints is about in terms of what our pilot study was, and it's stories of women who went through the process of care. And and you know, and what's funny, I learned about writing a book. I remember seeing a bunch of colleagues at a national meeting, and my book had come out, and I was so proud of it. And my colleagues were like, oh, yeah, hey, you know, did, nobody really mentioned the book, you know, and, you know, maybe somebody <laughs> mentioned it and I thought, oh, my gosh, like I'm feeling. And then I realized, well, no one's mentioning it because everybody's got a book, you know, right. it's kind of right. <laughs> so what I've learned is that the, the book is not a revenue stream whatsoever. So anybody out there wanting to write a book to make money, don't even think about it. It's not going to happen. But the book is a calling card. The book really establishes what it is. So I found a lot of value in people wanting to know what we do, you know, read the book. The workbook is the, accompanies the book, and essentially it's, it's how someone could walk through the, the process. And so it's been really valuable for our patients in our clinic to, to read the book, use the workbook as they go through our process of care. And the name of the book is, of course... I Want to Age Like That. That being, we all have a different that. Yes, right. And... You have an ebook called The Seeds. Briefly, what is that about? The Seeds. So The Seeds is something that, that we developed early on to describe what are the elements of a healthy lifestyle that really make a difference. And so it's all evidence-based and it's, it's called Seeds, the Seven Essential Elements of Daily Success. And so on our app, for example, patients can every day log in their seeds um, and really then correlate that with their, let's say, symptoms of menopause. And so I have more hot flashes if I have more sugar and I don't drink my water. Wow, I'm going to drink my water. So it puts it back on them of what they want to do and puts the power of how they feel back in their hands. Mm -hmm. And finally, the card game, which is, I don't think, anything like Euchre. Those of you not from Michigan, look it up, E-U-C-H-E-R. Now, the, the, the card game is called the sex deck. And basically, it's really changed how we talk about sexual health. You know, we know that 80% of women have sexual health concerns, but only 20% will ever bring it up. And most of us physicians know that people have concerns, but we don't want to bring it up because we don't know what to do about it. And we don't necessarily have answers because, again, we're not trained in sexual health. So forever, I hoped patients wouldn't bring it up because I didn't know anything <laughs> about it. And again, to your point earlier, like who else is supposed to know about it except the OBGYN should probably know about sexual health. And so, um, I, again, I'd go to these sexual health lectures at Ishwish, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Wow. So I'd go to Ishwish or NAMS and hear these wonderful lectures. And I would sit there at the end of the lecture and go, how am I supposed to communicate this with my patients? Like, in 10 minutes. And so I came up with, you know, the, the 27 reasons for low desire um, and did a lot of research and evidence based on each one of these causes, 
what causes them, what are the treatment options. And I thought, if I can put the information in the hands of the patients, it will facilitate my conversation. It will make it quicker. And so basically, these 27 cards are divided into physical, psychological, and interpersonal um, reasons for low sexual desire. On the front of the card is what the, what the thing is, let's say low estrogen um, or low testosterone or pain. Mm -hmm. And then on the back of the card is why that might happen and what to do about it. And so again, it's really helped the conversation. So for example, my medical assistant will give the patient the deck of cards and say, go through and pick the ones that you think might apply to you. Neat. And then when I walk in, I right away, if they're, if they're all red, I know it's going to be more of uh, physical, like pain or bladder issues. If it's, you know, blue, it's going to be interpersonal. And so I kind of already am thinking. And so it kind of gets my head in the right frame to, you know, what we're going to talk about. And then we use the cards to go through one by one and, and choose some treatment options. And then if she's in a partnered relationship, she can take these cards home and then talk about them at home with, and it takes away the blame game. It takes away whose fault this is. Right. And it really helps people talk about this. So I hope that this card game someday will be in the pocket of every healthcare provider. Um, and it's been, you know, vetted out by all my colleagues across the country. I'm just very proud of this because it really has helped improve the conversation around sexual health. That's really cool. And those are, um, you know, they're just as uncomfortable in medicine to talk about as, as they are in regular life, right? And you feel you've got a little comfortable in your comfort in the small exam room, but still it's... Exactly. All. Although one time I had this um, card deck in my purse at a... Um, <laughs> Um, meeting of sport parents, you know, my son's basketball team, the, you know, all the women were at one end and the dads were at the other and no one really knew each other. And someone said something about, so what do you do at work? So I pulled out the sex deck. And so everyone took a card. And so, you know, people are handing me their cards that were issues for them. And I'm like, I really don't want to know this about you. So sometimes, you know, it's a little awkward at parties, but... Um, That's the ultimate icebreaker. <laughs> it really was. I learned way too much about people that night. Well, Dr. Bittner, thank you so much for being on The Paradox. And uh, people can look up more for you. We'll have a, links on the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 115. Thanks My so pleasure. Much. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Contract Diagnostics. This is a company that specializes in contract reviews. Specialization is something we can all appreciate here. So again, when you or your family have contract needs, give them a call. They'll help you understand your contract and make sure it lines up with your interests and protects the assets that you covet most, your time and family. Find them at drpodcastnetwork.com slash contract diagnostics or call 888-574-5526. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.